Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Half of you. And uh, so uh, I'm going to maybe just kind of refresh uh, uh, our recollection from last Sunday. Uh, so if you brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. I'm just going to read uh, some of this passage. So we're talking about the future. And we're going to begin in verse 13. So Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. And if you were here last week, we talked about how Paul offers a story. Everyone say story. He offers a story about the future, a story about Jesus. And it's a story about the future. And he offers this as a way to counter anxiety. So this church in Thessalonica, they're suffering from persecution. Uh, some are confused about the resurrection and people who have uh, passed on. And they're trying to figure some things out. So Paul writes to them to address uh, some issues related to anxiety, some issues related to uh, the resurrection, some issues related to a lot of different things. Uh, his whole point is to uh, encourage this church in Thessalonica. And as I mentioned last week, Paul does not offer a technique. He does not offer uh, yoga, hot yoga. And if that's your thing, there's nothing wrong with that. He doesn't offer goat yoga. That's a thing, guys. That's a thing. Uh, he doesn't offer a breathing technique. He doesn't offer like a tweak that you can like uh, trick your brain to become more positive. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. If that's your thing, that's your thing. Uh, but Paul offers a story. And anytime we talk about the story, anytime the early Christians talked about the story of Jesus and announced Jesus, something powerful happened in the lives of, of those who heard it. And so we have verse 13, and Paul, as a way of reminder, He's talking to uh, this church, and he begins by saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What he's, he's not saying you can't grieve at all. He's saying when you do grieve, uh, there's still hope. And uh, Christians are people of hope. Christians are hopers. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Here's the story of Jesus. It's condensed. Since we believe that Jesus, we're believers. How many believers do we have here? Okay. For since we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming. Everyone say coming. This has been misinterpreted a lot, this word. In the Greek, it's perusa. And uh, the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul then gives them a picture of the future. He says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the future is about resurrection. The early church believed that Christianity was not a heaven movement. It was a resurrection movement. So verse 17, we continue. Then we who are alive, it gets a little bit bizarre. And uh, I'm going to spend maybe about five minutes in this talk um, kind of just fleshing out what, what Paul means in this passage. Because many of us have heard a lot of different um, interpretations of this passage. They get a little bit bizarre, maybe a little bit eccentric. I'll try to clear that up uh, today. But Paul says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. And we'll say caught up. 
They'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. So is Paul literally saying we're going to put on like an Iron Man suit? I'm going to fly up into some like interstellar space, location we call heaven. Is that what Paul is saying? And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Some Christians have believed that. Um, We'll talk about that. And so we always will be with the Lord. So Paul is talking about the coming of Jesus. Paul does believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul does believe that Jesus will return and make all things new. Verse 18, therefore, encourage, because of the story of Jesus, encourage one another with these words. And then we go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We read this passage a little bit last week, verse 5. Uh, Paul then writes, um, he uses a lot of different uh, metaphors and pictures as he talks about the future, writes about the future. And he says in verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. In other words, Christians are daytime people. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 7, for those who, are, who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So obviously he's using metaphor to describe what it means to be people of the hope, people of the daytime. And then he says in verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on, everyone say put on, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So put on faith, hope, and love. So we are believers, we are hopers, and uh, we're called to love the world. Amen? So verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, and then we end in verse 11, therefore, because of the story of Jesus, because of the future, because God will make all things new, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And everyone said, amen. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray? Father, I thank you that you're here. I thank you for your presence this morning. I thank you that we are made alive by your word. We just declare your word is um, it's active. It's, it's already going to work inside of us. Lord, I thank you that your will be done in us. We thank you for your grace. If there's anyone in this room that needs strength, or give them strength. Lord, I thank you for strength this morning as I share what you put on my heart in Jesus' name. I bless all the wonderful brothers and sisters in the Lord. And everyone said, amen, amen. So I actually... I changed my message late last night and I spent a couple hours just writing out a few things because I, I want to make sure before we get into some practical things and how we can be people of the future and how we can manage our lives not from the present but from the future and how we can alter the structures of our reality and how we live and our behavior. It's important as Christians that we understand what the story of Jesus is all about. And so I'm gonna, if you can give me 15 minutes, roughly 15 minutes, to compress this beautiful story uh, that's centered around Jesus. Because when we talk about the story of Jesus, there's life and there's power and there's grace and there's hope and there's transformation Amen. I like it when people respond. You can talk back to me. Uh, there's, there's newness of life when we uh, enter into the story 
of Jesus. And so uh, here we go. What is the story? The problem, I think, with a lot of Christians is we kind of forget the story. We, we have fragments of the story. Uh, maybe we have bizarre interpretations of the story. And uh, I, I think it's uh, today, I just want to clear the weeds, right? Pretend like I have like a, a weed eater. And let's pretend the backyard, uh, used to, as a bachelor, I just had this problem. Backyard always had weeds. And uh, let's pretend I'm going to the backyard, kind of clearing the weeds so we can see clearly what the story of Jesus is all about. In order to do that, we got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, uh, we have an origin story. It's a creation story. It's a story about God making uh, the cosmos. Uh, for us to really understand the creation story, it is important that we understand that there are other creation myths about uh, one in particular, a, a Babylonian creation myth uh, that was in circulation as the book of Genesis was being written. And uh, it was called the Enuma Elish. And uh, I shared this with our interns a couple, couple days ago. But in this creation myth story, uh, the Babylonians uh, called their god Marduk. Everyone say Marduk. And Marduk had a little um, conflict with the goddess uh, Tiamat. And uh, in this conflict, it's a little bit graphic, Marduk takes the body or the carcass of, of Tiamat and rips it apart violently, and creation builds out creation from the two halves of this carcass that Marduk um, violently destroyed. And this was the story that the Babylonians and pagans would tell themselves. And this is important for us to understand that in the ancient world, origin stories framed or gave shape to self-understanding and identity. And so in this creation myth story, um, Babylonians and pagans believed that the world, the cosmos, people, whatever, ran on violence. Violence was the way of life. So think of that story. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have this beautiful poem. In the Hebrew, it, it's, there's a lyrical element. It crescendos into this um, joyful celebration. And it begins with God. Everyone say God. God hovering over the primordial chaos. And what you see is that God brings creation into abundance and order and beauty and joy out of the chaotic elements that we find at the beginning of creation. We have time to talk uh, at length about that. So we have this, this celebration, and God creates Adam and Eve, male and female. They are uh, God's image bearers, and they're, they've been given the responsibility. We find this in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to uh, steward or be stewards of God's wisdom and love and power in creation itself. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, and we have this beautiful picture of overflowing generosity. So in our creation story that we have in the Bible, creation does not come from violence. Creation comes from overflowing generosity. We have in Genesis 2 another aspect of the story of creation. Uh, we don't have a polluted industrial wasteland. What we have is a garden. God creates the garden, and he puts Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden. There's a flowing river. There's gold everywhere. Can I get an amen to that? There's abundance, there's, there's blessing, and then we have this command. God, I think in verse 8, 9, and 10, commands the humans. I think this is the greatest command ever. In the Hebrew, it says, eat, eat. God says, eat, eat. Not just eat, 
but double eat. Eat to, to your heart's content. Like, come on, eat as much barbecue as you want. Like, eat as much, what, uh, chicken fried chicken. That's amazing. Go to Cracker Barrel. How many of you love Cracker Barrel, right? Get some country fried steak and get some fries and some mashed potatoes. Eat and eat and eat. God created a garden filled with the abundance of trees. It's like a cornucopia. It's filled with overflowing generosity. And so this is the command. And then God gives uh, the first humans a vocation to tend the garden. The garden is beautiful. In fact, uh, it's, it's um, noted that the trees were made by God. And before uh, there's any reference to the trees tasting good, there's a reference that these trees are beautiful to the sight. So God is the one who invented beauty. God is the one who specializes in uh, art and beautiful sunsets and um, the things that we would consider beauty. Have you ever been inspired before? By beauty, that ultimately is tethered to uh, what God has created. In other words, as and this is what Christians believe, we were designed for joy, we were designed for beauty, we were designed for celebration, we were designed for fruitful, good work. Okay, come on. So Christianity, the reason why we're talking about this is because many people think that Christianity is like world negating right? That somehow Christians believe that the world is like a cosmic suffering machine and we got to get out. Get out. Not, not any reference to the movie, but we got to get out of the world, right? Um, but that's not what we find in uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we find in Genesis uh, chapter 2, as God gives the command to eat, eat, and provides the abundance of, of trees and generosity is overflowing, that God is also a matchmaker. Uh, he's an officiant. At this kind of climactic, creative moment, God takes male and female and uh, like, a, like a matchmaker, brings them together. In other words, we have a wedding. God is like a DJ. There's a dance floor. There's a little bit of hip hop and a little bit of soul, I'm sure. Just trying to wake you guys up this morning. Come on, can I get in? anything from you? Okay. So this is a story of life and hope and beauty. And then we find in Genesis chapter 2 that God rests. God rests. And you've heard me maybe talk at length about this. Many of us think that uh, resting means a, like a, a nap. It somehow is a references maybe cosmic idleness or maybe like inactivity or for some of us, like rest means disengaging from the cares and worries of this world. And many people assume that God, he rested after he created everything. And then he kind of just took like a big, long 2,000, 3,000 year nap. Is that what rest means? No, rest actually, and I get this from John Walton, famous, um, very prolific author, famous Old Testament scholar. Rest in this ancient setting in the ancient Near East uh, did not refer to disengagement but it actually referred to a deity taking up normal operations of ruling. It actually meant engagement without obstacles. So to rest, maybe, maybe a way to, to illustrate this, uh, think of the White House. The White House, we all know, is a hub. Everyone say a hub. The White House is a hub, and uh, what happens at the White House is um, the work of running the country is done, in theory, right? When the president uh, gets elected, um, or wins the election, he or she will take up residence in the White House. When we, when we use language like that, when someone wins the election and takes up resident in the, residence in the White House, we're not suggesting they're going to sleep in the White House or the Lincoln bedroom all day long. 
What, what's happening? They're going to fill the White House with their presence. Not only that, but they're going to get down. The election is over. They're no longer going on the stump. There's not all that political trash. They're no longer having to go into debates. There's no longer all the controversies. The election and all the obstacles are over now. Now the job of running and ruling the country is at hand. And when we see that God created the cosmos, the constellations, the stars, all the raw materials, this world, he then rests. Or in other words, he floods creation because creation is a temple with his presence. And he goes to work, to ruling through his image bearers, creation itself. But we all know the story. The story doesn't last. Adam and Eve rebelled against creator God. As royal image bearers, they turn in on themselves. As kings and queens responsible to cultivate the garden and to bring God's wise stewardship over creation itself, decide to take matters into their own hand and they reject the command, the one command of God, and that was to not eat of the tree. One prohibition God gives Adam and Eve. You just can't, you can have all the other trees, millions and millions of trees, but you just can't have this one tree. The roots of their rebellion, we've talked about this um, at length, uh, were formed around their questioning of God's goodness, and this still happens today. The reason why we lust, the reason why there's greed in our hearts, the reason why we collude with dehumanized habits, we have rage and bitterness, and all the things that we talked about, paranoia, and all these things, if you were to strip them down to their roots, you would find a doubting of God's goodness. In fact, the voice behind every sin, the voice behind rebellious idolatry itself is the voice of, you know what, is God really that good? Man, don't you think that God's maybe holding out on you? We sung the song today. I loved it. God, and I think Pastor Ken, uh, you mentioned it as you transitioned. God is good all the time. Every single day, God is good. And yet we still, human, human nature is still dynamically shaped by this subtle creeping doubt that God is really not that good. We sing it on Sunday, God is good, but it's crazy how some of us live Monday through Sat Friday. Saturday's great because we got college football. So we're kind of happy. But Monday through Friday, we live, we structure our life around an assumption that God is not good. Like many of us, we just, you don't even know, it's in your subconscious, but you, you, you start your day, you assume from a deficit you assume you start from inadequacy or scarcity. That's all tied. It's all tethered to this idea that God is not good enough for you. And because we believe that assumption that we start from a deficit, we, we begin to twist our lives. And so as image bearers, back to Adam and Eve, as image bearers, they, through their rebellious idolatry, unleashed the tragic consequences of violence and corruption. And the words of N.T. Wright, defacing, and this corruption and violence, deface the beauty of God's world. However, we got good news. God did not abandon creation, did not abandon Adam and Eve, did not leave uh, his people in the Old Testament. 
uh, did not forsake them. The Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi is a long story about how God was going to rescue the world through his people. And yet, unfortunately, unfortunately, from Abraham to David and on, we still have this rebellious idolatry giving shape to the hearts of God's people. Abraham started out great. How many father Abraham had many sons, right? And many sons had father Abraham, right? That's for free right there. He started great, but guess what happened? He started, well, he, he lost his way. Um, he gave in to fear, and he pimped out his wife twice. Bad strategy, husbands, bad strategy. We come to David. David is, is classified in Scripture as a man, designated in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And he took his, one of his best friend's wife and slept with her. We know that there's something running through the human heart that's not right, there's un- God's people are unfaithful. They're given the responsibility to be wise stewards. God was going to rescue the world through Abraham and David and his people and through the kings, and yet his people turned back on themselves. They were unfaithful. However, we have good news is that God sought out his people. We have passages like Isaiah chapter 11 and a couple years ago, I spent probably every Sunday ad nauseum talking about these passages, but I love Isaiah chapter 11. We have a glimpse of the future. In the setting of unfaithfulness, Isaiah is given a, a, a majestic picture of God's future world, and he begins, Isaiah 11, begins with a declaration, and it's this, there shall come forth a king-like figure, and righteousness will be Uh, his belt, and faithfulness will define his uh, ministry. And he will, in essence, put creation back to rights. And when that happens in this future world, uh, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard will no longer eat the goat. This is a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when Adam was given the responsibility of naming the uh, animals in the garden. And so this future world is alluded to a kind of garden uh, world. So when that happens, wolf shall lie down with lamb. I love this. Uh, Lion shall become vegetarian. They shall eat straw. And all the vegetarians and vegans said amen. But in this beautiful passage, Man, this is a rough crowd this morning. Wow, okay. (laughs) Lord. But Isaiah 11 hits this crescendo. Please, stay with me. In this crescendo, we have a promise that God will flood creation with his presence and with his glory. Because creation is a temple. Creation is not just some arbitrary thing that's somehow completely um, unrelated to heaven and to God's plan or God's purpose. No, it is tangentially related to heaven and what God is doing. God is at work in creation itself and in this future world that God's glory will flood uh, creation as the waters cover the sea. And you have passages like this over and over and over that talk about new creation, that talk about how briars will be turned into cypress, how deserts and wildernesses and wastelands will be turned into green pastures. This is the future world that is promised to God's people. And then we have the story of Jesus. 
And there's a lot of confusion about the story of Jesus. A lot of people think, a lot of people assume that Christianity is, uh, it's all about getting religion. Uh, it's all about, like, really becoming a nice person. It's about, like, it's kind of like my Royal Ranger anthem. It's like, don't, we, we said it every Wednesday night. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't go out with people who do, right? So we just assume, and again, smoking, drinking, there's no judgment here. We just think it's bad for your body. Can I get an amen? No judgment, all right? Um, anyway, we'll move on. But we think that Christianity is about being nice, paying your taxes, being a do-gooder. Right? Get religion. We think that's what Jesus is all about. He's going to forgive you of your sins. And uh, then one day, man, if you're, really, if you're really good, you get snatched up from earth. And then in a post-mortem existence, your soul will fly off to this disembodied location somewhere out, somewhere out there in the sky. You hear me say this all the time. And for eternity, will shine like glow sticks. I'm going to say this ad nauseum. I know you're probably going to roll your eyes, but I love this statement. Until I get sick of it, I'm going to say it till kingdom come. That we're going to shine, we assume, we're going to shine like Rihanna's diamonds, right? Like on a little fluffy disembodied cloud uh, with a, with a like, disembodied cello or whatever. And we just kind of like, we're in this constant state of idleness, not doing anything in heaven. For me, maybe not for you, for me, that's my definition of hell. Naked cherubs, disembodiedness, I, it's not my thing. If that's your thing, you're weird. All right. So Christianity is not about, about being turned into some disembodied glow stick. It's also, many people have assumed that Christianity is all about the imminent collapse of the space-time universe. That God will destroy uh, creation. What he has made, he's going to scrap it. We talked a little bit about this last week. He's going to throw it say this a lot, into the cosmic dumpster fire. He's going to get rid of it so we can fly off to heaven. But that's emphatically what the New Testament does not teach. Emphatically. What we find the New Testament teaches is that from the very beginning, Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had arrived. What does that mean? That means that the future world, God's future world, had arrived in Jesus, in his life, and in his teaching. In other words, Jesus said that he was the fulfillment of Israel's long story. That Isaiah chapter 11 about the coming of the king, there shall come forth, and about vegetarian lions, and about the whole earth being filled with God's glory was being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying the long story of how God was going to heal creation and to put it to right and to make all people new was coming true in Jesus. However, after Jesus announced this about the coming of the kingdom, he would say over and over and over, you must repent and believe. See, here's the problem. The Old Testament teaches this. This is the New Testament you can certainly, um, if you have questions, if you disagree, you can um, email Pastor Ken at hotmail.com. It's such a bad joke. Hotmail, is, there, is that even a thing? Is that even around? I don't know. It's kind of, yeah. Anyways. Um, but here, we, I, I want you to hear me. The Christian response to the human heart is that we are not basically good, basically right. We are basically wrong. Jesus said you must Repent. 
Repent in the Greek comes from a, a word which means you have to go beyond the mind that you have. Uh, there's, there's a conceptual world that we don't have time. It's a little bit complicated to flesh it out today. But in essence, repentance means you're going one way, in the opposite way of God, and you're colluding with death. But to repent means to turn 180 degrees, turn back towards God. And anytime you're going towards God, you're now courting life and life more abundantly. So repentance simply means, it's not like simply coming up and crying your face off, right? Ugly cry, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. And you repent for your sins. It certainly includes that. But repentance is a way of life. It it works from the assumption that we are basically wrong. You see, in, in our therapeutic world, we believe we just need a tweak. Like we just need fi a fine tuning of our heart because we work from an assumption that we are basically right. I just need, and there's nothing wrong with this, therapy is great, but uh, we assume that I just need a, maybe a little bit more therapy, maybe some more breathing exercises, and I can make my life right. Well, the Christian response is Jesus would say, no, we are not basically right. We don't need a, a tweaking of our heart. We need conversion. We need a radical transformation of how we think in our heart and our mind. Repent is not like, oh, I gotta like be feel like really bad about myself. No, repent is actually, it's filled with joy. It means, yeah, you have been going the wrong way, but there's good news. You can turn around and you can change how you think and you can line your life up with what God thinks and has designed for us as humans. So in one sense, the future the New Testament teaches us this dramatically arrived in the life, the death, burial, resurrection, the, and the ascension of Jesus, who now is ruling creation in heaven. And then through the giving of the Spirit, the future has been inaugurated, but not fully. Inaugurated, but it's not complete. People are getting healed, but there's still sickness. Death has been overthrown, but there's still death that hangs and sadness that hangs over God's creation. So the New Testament teaches us, and I don't want to get technical here. Are you guys still with me? The future was a two-staged event. And this essentially means that Jesus inaugurated God's future world. And there was healing and life and transformation and the giving of the Spirit. And Jesus is now king over all creation. In another sense, the future had not fully arrived. But we have everyone from Paul and Peter and James and, and John and early church fathers. They insisted that Jesus would return. Not as a vengeful deity, but as a loving creator who would indeed address the presence of evil. He would address and judge those who have defaced creation. But in judging evil and addressing evil once and for all, at the end of human history, God would heal creation. And there would be a new heavens and a new earth that would overlap and join up together. And we find in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 that at the end of human history, God, through Jesus, his son, would reconcile all things. He would join everything up. He would bring all things together. He would heal all broken things. He would heal all regrets, all the pain, all the suffering, all the tears would be healed and transformed by the reconciling power of Jesus. This is the future.
It's a powerful story. How many of you like stories? Uh, I, I've shared a story about camping recently, about a month ago. Uh, went, uh, went to the Frank Church Wilderness of No Return. We did return. And, you know, we, we, uh, we hiked into, like, some of the most rugged terrain I've ever been in. Thank you, Joel King, for that. I kind of don't like you. But I don't know if I hiked. I was more, like, dragged into uh, the wilderness of no return. And it took us about three hours to get into our, to get to where we were uh, camping. And it's funny how it was, not just, I don't think I said this, but we, we experienced pretty much all types of weather. We had snow. This is, like, the beginning of August. We had hell. We had uh, sleet. We had a lot of rain. We woke up the next morning, and it was probably 15 degrees. Uh, we had a wind chill of 5 degrees. I heard Joel King say over and over, I've never seen anything like this before. Did not bring comfort to me. <laughs> My friend Leon, I don't know if Leon is here. He had the best strategy. I mean, it was miserable. It was, it was fun because I was with friends. C.S. Lewis said this. There's nothing better uh, being around a campfire and uh, talking to your Christian friends. Uh, unless you're camping in the Frank Church wilderness of no return, right? It felt miserable in that moment. But Leon, my friend, he had the best strategy. It's like you just lose consciousness and time just goes by really fast. So he took four naps in his tent. It's the best strategy ever, Leon. If you're here, I love you, man. I'm going to do that next time. I'm just going to sleep through this. It was a miserable, a miserable kind of, but interesting, great Experience. We, I went up with 13 uh, uh, people, and now they're like my, my, my brothers. We're, we're family, and we'll never forget this. Isn't it funny how the worst parts of your story can become the best parts? Like, I, I was remembering this week, and please don't judge me. This was when I was in, like, my late teens. I remember Nate Argon um, calling them out, Shane Grove, and myself. Uh, there was one time where we got chased by a guy with a bat, Okay, I'm not going to get into the story. Don't ask me. Don't email. It was totally Nate Argon's fault. <laughs> but I remember in that moment, I, it was horrifying. I was horrified. Um, I, I thought that it was going to be the last night of my life. I literally thought I was going to die. Shane Grove was, I mean, he's, he's, the, you know, he's a pillar. He's a rock. He was amazing. Thank God for him. Somehow we managed to survive. And it's funny, 20 years, 25 years to this day, we'll, we'll talk about that story, Shane, Nate, and I, together by ourselves at Plush Pippin. Is there a Plush Pippin? Okay, no, there's, we used to go to Plush Pippin, uh, Sherry's, right, whatever. And uh, we, we recount every aspect of the story. We don't omit one thing. We tell all of it, and guess what we do? We laugh. We laugh. It's amazing how the worst parts become the best parts. Well, I think we need to think of the story of Jesus like that. We need to think of the story of creation like that. We need to think about our story belonging to, to King Jesus like that. Maybe today you're not laughing. Maybe you're not joyful. Maybe you're in the throes of a deep sadness. Maybe you're experiencing a midlife crisis. Maybe you're trying to figure things out. Maybe some of you, you think your future uh, is, is um, not bright. Maybe your future is defined more like um, dystopian uh, by dystopian fear or anxiety. Maybe right now you're sick. Maybe you got bad news this week and you don't feel like joy. Well, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is talking to a church that's feeling that way. 
And he gives them the story. Guys, I know what you're going through, and we can be honest about what we're experiencing, but the good news is, is that Jesus will return, which means all of creation will be brought together, joined up in King Jesus. All of human history, all the broken hearts, all the brains and bodies, all the suffering, regrets, sadness, pain, if you belong to Jesus, addictions will be transformed by the power of Jesus. So I want you to have hope today. Some of you don't have hope. But I want you to know that even though you might be crying in the future, if you belong to King Jesus, it might not feel like it can possibly go this way. But in the future, Jesus will have you laughing with joy. He makes all stories Stories of kids, massive men with bats chasing a redhead, and the worst camping experience of my life turns them into celebrations. This is the story of creation, and this is what Paul is talking about. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I just have um, two more minutes, if that's all right. Where is the time? Wow, that is amazing. Uh, But in verse 14, uh, Paul says, hey, guys, this is the answer to the anxiety and the confusion that you're experiencing, Jesus will return. The word that he uses in the English is Jesus will come back, which literally means, it's the Greek word parousia, which literally means presence. This idea of presence is associated with um, uh, two uh, definitions. I'll say it that way. Um, one is when people use this Greek word, uh, coming in presence, uh, it referred to when God suddenly healed somebody or God showed himself to his people. The second uh, aspect of this word presence uh, was defined by a king visiting a uh, colony or a town. It was a royal visitation when the emperor would come to a town and the town would meet would come out in the countryside, meet the Caesar, meet the king or the emperor, and invite them back into the city. And what we have is that Paul says, we, as Jesus comes, we will meet him in the air. He's not literally saying Jesus is going to give you an Iron Man backpack and you're going to fly up into the clouds. What he is saying, Jesus will appear one day and he will put creation and your body and your life and your kids and this world back to rights. But what Paul is saying is he's referring or alluding to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, we have one like the Son of Man who ascends into the clouds. That was apocalyptic uh, language that referred to the vindication of the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the people of God who are overwhelmed by these primordial monsters and beasts. And they are vindicated. They arise in the clouds. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus will return. And there is a resurrection of the bodies. And in the end, Jesus will wipe away every tear. And heaven, which is God's space, heaven, which is an altogether different place, it's a different dimension, but it's more real, more solid than we could ever imagine, will finally come together and join up with earth, our space. And so Paul is saying, you must keep your mind on this future. And if you can rehearse this and drill this story about what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do, this is your source of encouragement. There is power in the story of Jesus. Counseling is amazing. 
and I, I'm an advocate for counseling. I'm an advocate. I love what we're finding in neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience. It's amazing. But when it comes down to it, the only power that we have is found in the story of Jesus, King Jesus. And he will return, Paul tells us. So what do we do in the meantime? I got I to gotta land this plane, right? What, what do we do? What Paul tells us, as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 8 through 10, we have to anticipate this future world by putting on faith, hope, love. So how do we anticipate? Funny story. Uh, I shared this before, but three years ago, my son Wesley, everyone say Wesley. Wesley uh, wanted to be Jesus for Halloween. So I was borderline. Ah, is that sacrilegious? Like, should I be scared for my son, right? You know, I'd, and so we decided we wanted to, like, maybe discourage it in a very nice way. And so my wife actually got a picture of a porcelain Jesus, flowing white garments, like Birkenstocks, flowing hair, faux tan, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Wesley saw the picture of Jesus, looked to my wife, and said, this is our God? <laughs> so I think he decided to be a strawberry that year. A little weird, a little weird. We brought him back, though. We brought him back from the brink. And so what was fascinating is that at their school, they have a harvest party. Uh, it's Friday. It's about 6 o'clock. That day at school, they could dress up in their costumes. It was funny how they dress up in their costume as a way to anticipate what was going to happen at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock for them, it was the magic hour. I don't even know what the magic hour means, but let's just, whatever. Okay, so at 6 o'clock, you have, you had games and you had food and you had all these festivities. It's, it's, a, it's a harvest party and kids were so excited. They anticipated the future event by putting on their costumes. Essentially what Paul is saying is the way we anticipate the future in between the resurrection of Jesus and his coming where he returns and puts creation to rights. We anticipate by putting on love and faith and hope. We're telling everybody in essence what the future is going to be like. Like if the future is just going to be all about destruction, there's no reason to believe. There's no reason to hope. Is there a reason to even care if this world is going to be destroyed? In fact, if we just, if, if it was all about the imminent collapse of the space-time universe and following Jesus was simply about going to heaven, then why, when we give our life to Jesus, would God not just take us to heaven? No, he's left us here because this world matters. Matter matters in the words of one scholar. So we put on faith, hope, and love by anticipating this future world. So how do we do this? Over the next three weeks, I'm going to get really practical. I understand today I wasn't that practical. But there are two things that we can do this week. Number one, the way we can drill the story of Jesus into our mind and into our heart, the way we develop a look into the future and manage our lives from the future and not simply by our circumstances and our present, is we have to rehearse the story every single day. This is what I want to Imagine if this community right here, second service, imagine if we all for 15 minutes every single day this week rehearsed the story of Jesus. 
You don't have to rehearse it perfectly. You don't have to have a comprehensive perspective on the story of Christianity. But anytime you just simply sit down and you rehearse or you sing or you study scripture or you tell yourself or declare the story of Jesus, the power of God is released in your life. So when you're sick, rehearse the story of Jesus. Be honest that you're sick. Like Christians, we shouldn't deny reality. I ain't sick, I ain't sick, I ain't sick. No, be okay with being sick, but take the sickness and present it to Jesus and tell the story of Jesus or speak the story of Jesus over your sickness. If you're going through a difficult circumstance, if you're going through trouble, if you feel like you're right now in the throes of hell itself, rehearse the story of Jesus. There is power in your confession, and it's not your confession that has power. It's the story of Jesus that has power and dynamic to transform you. Imagine every single day for 15 minutes where this community would rehearse that story. Secondly, as we rehearse, and I promise I'll get really practical over the next few weeks, and I'm done here, we need to practice what we rehearse. I do think there's a problem, and, and I'm going to own it. I think we could all own it. Can I be honest this morning? That on Sundays, there's always this tendency to celebrate the goodness of God, to talk about how good God is, and like we're doing the Pentecostal two-step, and we're having a great worship experience, and we receive the message, and then for some reason, it's like we forget it. And then Monday through Friday, Sunday, we're Christians, and our lives are structured around the goodness of God. And then for some reason, Monday through Friday, and there's no judgment here, we all can own it, but Monday through Friday, it's like our whole lives are structured around doubt and sorrow and unbelief and deficit. Not faith, hope, and love, right? And it's important that we rehearse the story of Jesus, but as we rehearse the story of Jesus, again, there's no judgment here, it's important that we put into practice the things that God speaks to us. This is important, James tells us as we close here, uh, verse 21 through 24, he says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So it's the word of God that goes to work in us. It's the story of Jesus that we remember that just there's power that's released in our life. We just speak it, we say it. And then James continues in this kind of wisdom instruction saying, he says, but, you have to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Verse 24, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Neuropsychologists are telling us that when we practice cognitive dissonance, which is essentially you have two beliefs, opposite beliefs that you hold at the same time. So when, like for example, on Sunday, you preach to yourself and you sing that Jesus is good, but Monday through Friday, you're, you're complaining and you're gossiping and you're not putting on faith, hope, and love. That creates cognitive dissonance. And scientists, neuroscientists are telling us as they study the brain, that cognitive dissonance actually leads to brain damage. In other words, it physically changes the structure of your brain. 
and you forget who you are. Isn't it funny how science just backs up what we find in scripture? That God has designed and wired your brain in such a way as you rehearse something, you have to practice it. You gotta, you gotta put it into your life. So this is what I want us to do as a community this week before we get into the really practical stuff on how to be future-oriented people. Number one, let's rehearse the story of God. Let's start with 15 minutes a day. Maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's at night. I have a little trick. At night, I love to rehearse the story of Jesus with my kids. I'll spend an hour, maybe you had a long day, maybe things just happened, that's totally fine. But if you have kids, just go upstairs and just start talking about Jesus. That's something you can certainly do. But let's rehearse the story of Jesus. And then as you do that, the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to you about certain things. And we're gonna talk more about how the Holy Spirit does this in our life. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to you about maybe encouraging things, maybe some things you need to correct and respond to, whatever, then put that into practice. You will find grace and power to do that this week. And everyone said, amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.